Let's jump into God's Word together. This is super important. I, I watch the clock on Sundays more than you do. I'd say we're a little bit behind, but that's okay. And I'm not going to shortchange this, nor will I extend it extra long, but this is a really important passage for us to look at. And if you were in that missions time in the middle and you think through some of what we heard missionaries share, this is just incredibly important for the heart of believers to understand what Jesus says to his disciples. So let me give you the big picture before we jump into Matthew 19. You won't see it in your insert, but if you have your Bible, if you look at verse 30 of chapter 19, Jesus says, many who are first shall be last and the last first. And then if you look in your Bible at chapter 20, verse 16, he says again, the last will be first and the first last. He says the same thing backwards. So this is all one extended teaching time of Jesus to his disciples, and he's going to finish both sections with basically the same statement. So I would just pose to you before we start, that's probably the key to understanding all of what he's saying. So this is the first sermon on the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Next week's the second sermon on the, how's it said, the last who will be first and the first last. Okay, let's stand together and let's hear God's word from Jesus as he interacts with his disciples The disciples have just seen the interchange with the rich young man who refused to walk away from his possessions, made him truly sad. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. This is your word. We are your people. We ask you to move in our hearts, God. Holy Spirit, change us as we listen to Jesus, trusting the kingdom of God our Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I put a quote in your insert uh, from a book I read years ago by uh, Hugh Halter and Matt Smay. I don't necessarily agree with everything they said, but they were basically diagnosing the church and talking about things. And one thing they said is a consumer is not a disciple, and a disciple is not a consumer. Jean Baudrillard, a French philosopher, sociologist, he's a poet, he said this, he said, consumption is a system of meaning. Do you agree with that? We are what we consume, perhaps. You heard that before? What we watch, what we listen to, the ideas we believe, the more we consume them, the more that we become that which we consume. It takes over us. In a way, you could say it's only natural because we may say, well, we choose things that we want or maybe even more noble than that. We, we, we decide to pursue things that we believe are good or are best or are wisest. And then it often happens that if things don't develop the way we thought they would, we're not satisfied with what we chose. 
then we look for something else to consume, some other idea to follow after, some other thing to hold, some new shiny object. Think that in our capitalistic, consumeristic culture, sometimes we don't even see it happening. It's seductive. But here's the thought is, how dangerous can a mindset of consumerism be to our spiritual life? How dangerous dangerous can it be to our relational life? I read an essay called The Consumer Church by Mark Riddle. It's been some time since I read it, but here's what Riddle said. If I'm a consumer, I'm really only interested in me, which leads to an inability to love others. When I'm a consumer, I'm interested in knowing you primarily for one reason, what you can give to me. Which is why it leads so easily into being a manipulator or a user of others, because life becomes totally transactional. Here's one of the things that Riddle says in his essay that just stood out to me. He says, depth always comes slowly for those with a consumeristic spirituality. Maturity happens rather slowly. I mean, maybe think of a teenager. Think of a youth growing up and, and having others invest in them. And that youth might say, what I really want is the freedom to kind of do what I want with my life. And, and that's what it feels like to be grown up. Well, those who love a, a youth, which this is not just a youth thing, but picture adolescence. The message needs to lovingly be delivered that, you know, it's not as grown up as you think if all you're doing is consuming things for yourself, Uh, fixating on yourself, demanding others do things for yourself, using others for the joy of yourself. Uh, That's actually not maturity. That's what it looks like to not grow up. And again, it's not just a youth problem. We know what it looks like when adults still act in such a childlike way. It's living a consumeristic spiritual life if we put that on top of our Christianity, our discipleship. And the reason I point this out is because even in this text, you will hear Peter ask a question of Jesus. He says, what do we get? It's a very consumeristic question, isn't it? And so the scene, we looked at it last week. The disciples have witnessed this interchange of the rich young man. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life, to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus Contrary to what we expect, he doesn't say, well, young man, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Instead, he says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, I did, mostly, as far as I can tell. And Jesus says, if you really want to be sure, go sell everything you have. Take all your, all your assets, right? Get rid of them. And then give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And if you do that, we'll talk. <laughs> young man walks away with true sadness. That's what we looked at last week. You could say he was not interested in a kingdom that would consume his own wealth, or he was not interested in a kingdom that would limit what he could consume with what he had built for himself. And the disciples are standing there. They watch him walk away totally sad. And what we talked about last week, because I want to remind you of this if you weren't here, Jesus had just laid his hands on the children and prayed for him, for them. This beautiful scene of receiving the children. And then when he sees this rich young man, I would say he puts his finger on the man at the very pressure point of that man's soul and says, just let let go of the thing that you're holding most dear. And I I read a quote to you from C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy. Essentially, Lewis says, nobody can set in their soul a bunch of no admittance signs all over the place. And Lewis says, but that's what I wanted. I wanted some area, no matter how small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. 
So that's what Jesus did. He puts his finger on the thing the man had a no admittance sign in front of. And now the disciples are wrestling with this and they realize it's impossible to be in the kingdom of Jesus. Who then can be saved? And so Jesus answers their question. So the first point in your outline is just how difficult the kingdom is for wealthy consumers. Verse 24, Jesus says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is. Now, I was reading different commentaries this week, and I learned that there's rumors of a a needle gate in Jerusalem. Maybe you've heard of this, a small teardrop-shaped gate that would be used at night, and and it's so small that a, a man might be able to fit through it, but different commentators said maybe if a camel got on its knees and kind of figured out how to go through the teardrop shape of this this gate, a camel could go through. But as one commentator said, no one could ever take a camel laden with all their riches through this tiny gate. And then every single commentary I read said, there is no historical evidence such gate ever existed. So I just thought I'd pass that on to you. I don't think that's what it is, but it does make sense to our minds. Jesus is speaking with hyperbole, most likely, right? He's He's speaking of a very large animal that would be easily relatable to the disciples and the very smallest, tiniest hole that they could conceive of. The point is it's impossible. Say it like this. Jesus is making it clear. Riches are a spiritual hindrance more than they are a spiritual help. And and you may say, I I totally agree with that. Or you may say, well, I I actually think if I had more discretionary resources, it would be a lot easier to steward my life for God's glory. Like it really would. We could do more. We could serve more. We could do more, especially on a missions month. But are, are we sure about that? I've been reading different places this week. What makes wealth so difficult spiritually? Well, one is just the consumeristic mindset. I'll say more in a second. But D.A. Carson, he said, well, let's think about what the Jews probably thought about wealth. The, the Jewish people would think that not they could buy God's affection with their riches, but they probably did think that if one of them is is definitely wealthy, then what's it a sign of? God must be pleased with me. And so with riches can come this spiritual laziness and these assumptions that I'm good. I'm good. Look at at my blessing. I'm fine. It's a physical evidence of God's kindness, but it has nothing to do with the deeper need that God has to provide for, right? In fact, it can be in the way. R.C. Sproul lists three reasons why wealth can be so difficult. And he says, firstly, it's because it comes with a sense of self-sufficiency. The wealthier the person, the less dependent he or she will be on other things and other people and even on the creator and provider who's the king of their salvation. It just gets easy to say, I can cover that. No problem. It's not that hard. He says, wealth often also comes with a burden unto total absorption. He says, wealth forces people to keep their eyes on their business, their eyes on their responsibility, on their purchases and so on. Wealth takes a lot of time and energy got to stay on it. And that leads to the third thing Sproul says. It, of course, becomes a consuming obsession. And that's the sin that's listed as greed. Dissatisfaction turns into an insatiable demand, right? Somehow, when we accumulate, the goal keeps getting higher and higher, doesn't it? And you might say, well, how much is enough? You ever had that question asked of you? How much is enough? How much has your answer changed to that question in the last five years based on circumstances in your life? How much is enough? Well, it's not the same answer you gave five years ago. What's it going to be in five years? What does that indicate to us? 
We can be consumed with the thought of being secure enough with that which we have. The point is, wealth is hard. It's not inherently evil, though. That's very important. So please, it's not inherently evil. Money is no more moral than is a talent. It's about how one uses what has been given to them, right? And besides that, can you think in the scriptures of the amount of people God has blessed with riches? Just to name them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia. The Lord's so kind to bless persons with riches according to his providence. But it doesn't mean it's not hard spiritually for that person. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me and he knows me. The disciples, they get this. Man, this is hard, they say. Jesus, who then can be saved? I think when they ask the question like that, they're acknowledging, this isn't just about those who have lots. This is about those who don't have enough in their own mind. How can anyone be saved? That's what the disciples say. It's like they've been reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18 and following, where Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he essentially says it doesn't matter if one works hard or one doesn't work hard. In the end, it's not yours to keep. It all goes away. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes 2, he says, whether it happens sooner or later, one day you will leave it all behind. Now, hopefully, in a way that honors others and You've given an inheritance that they can steward it for the glory of God. But Riken says, or your collection may go to a dealer. The contents of your home will be sold at auction. Someone else will manage your portfolio. Then everything you've worked a lifetime to gain and maintain, it's not your responsibility anymore. It's gone. It doesn't mean that's only a struggle for those who have much to manage. It's a struggle for all, isn't it? Disciples understand this and Jesus understands that they're struggling with this. So he says, hey, boys, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I don't have time in the sermon to show the, all the connections here, but I would propose to you that's like a foundation sentence we should put underneath the very essence of what the gospel is. The gospel is not that God helps me help myself. The, the essence of the gospel is with man, salvation inherently is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Right, so we could look at Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, the new covenant. Right, God will take a, a heart of stone, a dead heart. He can make it alive. Scriptures tell us that when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive in Christ. God does the impossible to save a sinner. Well, how does God do that? He does it in an impossible way. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It's so impossible to man. God's impossible way is a chosen path of substitution. That he would credit to the unrighteous a righteousness by faith alone, and he would punish the righteous one for the sins of the unrighteous. That's impossible to fathom, but the point is, you can't do it, and I can't do it. It's the essence of the gospel. That though Jesus was rich, he would become poor. That those who are poor, spiritually speaking, and have nothing would be counted as rich in the sight of God for forever. It's impossible. So I would say to you, it's a summary of the gospel. But notice what happens next. And maybe if you're looking at your, your Bible, look in verse 27. Because Peter gets thinking on this. And it's always helpful to wonder why Peter doesn't say something else. He does not say, Jesus, how will God do the impossible? 
And you all know this. I'm guilty as charged. I've told you. I don't even have to tell you. I'm a lot like Peter. Foolish things come out of my mouth. Hopefully some unfoolish things come out of my mouth, but they're coming. And I realized as I was preparing this that I'm a much better question asker in a, in a sermon than I am in real life with people in relationships. I'm a decent rhetorical question asker, but when I miss the moment in a conversation with some of you and I ask for your forgiveness to ask two or three more questions to get to know your heart. Because I think of something and I go with it. I hate that about myself and I'm a work in progress, but I think that's what happens here and I, I want to give Peter a hug because Peter... He doesn't say, Jesus, how are you going to do the impossible? Instead, he says, wait, we've done that. We've walked away from everything. All the things you just told that other guy to do, we've done it. And don't think for an instant that just because they were little fishermen that they were necessarily poor, as we define wealth. I was reading this week in multiple places. And when the disciples walked away from boats, they didn't just walk away from jobs because they worked for somebody else who owned a boat. They walked away from a family business with a boat. And most boats found, as we look back to the first century, were large fishing boats. Could hold up to a thousand fish. You ever thought about how much the disciples did walk away from? How much means they may have had? And they walked away and followed Jesus. And so Peter gets thinking. He says, well, then what are we going to get? Because we did it. And that is to our second point in your outline. That's consumer language. Are the disciples just kingdom consumers? And I think it's amazing. Jesus does not rebuke the rich young ruler last, as we saw last week. We expect him to, but he doesn't. And he doesn't rebuke Peter here, and we might expect him to. He doesn't say, Peter, stop worrying about what you'll get. Just trust me. He doesn't say, Peter, don't compare yourself to that guy. He doesn't say, Peter... Stop making it all about you all the time. Instead, as Don Carson says, he doesn't castigate his disciples for being mercenaries at all. They have made sacrifices and they deserve an answer. And Jesus graciously answers them. And you know how he does it? He gives two audacious promises. So we look in verse 28, the first one. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they've gone from sitting in fishing boats to they'll be sitting on thrones in a new world. And, and he calls himself the Son of Man again. That's Daniel 7, where the Son of Man has given dominion over all the earth from the ancient of days. And Jesus says, I'll be on my throne, and boys, you're going to be on thrones around me. This is unbelievable. What might the 12 tribes over the 12 tribes of 12 thrones over the 12 tribes mean? Well, there's different takes. I read in one place it might mean that Jesus is talking about the nation of Israel that rejected him as the Messiah, that didn't believe. And so the disciples, you're actually going to sit on thrones and judge those who've rejected me, that should have known better. They knew the prophets, they knew the law. Or it could be later than that where there's not going to be any need for moral judgment in God's kingdom because it's going to be a righteous place with only those who've been made righteous. So the disciples aren't judging anyone, they're actually. Leading, so to speak, that, that kind of, a, of an authority. The beautiful thing is, as Pastor Bill said in our word work meeting, what a glorious promise of shared leadership in a forever kingdom. That's what they're given. That's the first promise. The second promise is in verse 29. I say to you, anyone who's left houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I think this is amazing. Jesus kind of ups the ante. What did he talk to the rich young man about? 
he told him to leave his stuff, right? But when Peter gets thinking on this and Jesus addresses his own disciples, he doesn't just talk about stuff. He says anybody who's walked away from houses and lands, yeah, that's stuff. But I think Jesus goes to something that's way harder to walk away from. He brings up family. He brings up people. He brings up relationships. And so on this Mission Sunday, I want you to think with me in the Bible how many prophets and the apostles, the disciples, that walked away from a path of ease or at least easier connection with family to honor God's call in their life because of an assigned sphere of influence he'd given to them. Now think with me of missionaries and disciples, past and present, who miss vacations and time with family. And it's harder than not having resources. But it's part of saying, I don't want to be a kingdom consumer. In fact, it's the opposite. I'll have all the easier things kind of be consumed, so to speak, to follow after Jesus on mission. What an amazing thing he says now when he says, but for those who do that, hundredfold abundant blessing beyond what can be imagined. Now, we know this isn't literal because no one will have a hundred mothers in the next, you know, maybe spiritual mothers, but not literally. It can't be literal. He's saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your mind. It's going to be bigger than you can fathom. In fact, look in verse 29. It's the opposite of doing something to get something in return. That's consumerism. He calls it an inheritance in verse 29. He says those who've done this will inherit. That's the language of belonging, like being a child, which takes us back to verse 15, where he says to such belongs the kingdom. No, no, no. Earning is involved. When will this hundredfold return happen? Well, not just in the future. It'll be in this age and in the age to come. That's the way the Gospel of Luke presents it. The same story. That's what Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 30. You'll receive an inheritance in this age and in the age to come. Think about this age, all the blessings. We have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living when we know our sins are forgiven, when we can walk free and guiltless. We have the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living when we can wake up in the morning with a purpose and with an understanding of the role we play in community. We can wake up with an understanding of security and peace because we know the future's handled. Those are all blessings in the land of the living. But how about in the age to come? What does that mean? For time's sake, I won't say a lot. Put some quotes on the back of your bulletin, but sometimes we need reprogramming when we think about what the age to come means. In verse 28, Jesus says, this will happen in the new world. That's the Greek word for regeneration. And when, when the, the scriptures describe the new world, please do not think of us all flying away to our own personal cloud with our own personal angel playing our favorite song on whichever instrument you prefer. That's just, we need some reprogramming. In fact, the more we study the scripture, we realize there's a continuity between this world and the world that will be remade. And let's think about what the Bible teaches. Romans 8, all creation is groaning for redemption. Is God not going to keep his promise to redeem his own creation, this order, this world? Or Revelation 21 tells us that he will make all things new. It doesn't say he's going to make all new things. Or maybe you're familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where the scriptures talk of uh, people meeting Jesus in the clouds, right? That, gr that Greek word to meet, a lot of times the thought is to meet him in the clouds and just keep going with him. But the only other place that Greek word is used in the New Testament is when people would leave the city they were in to go out and meet the Apostle Paul and escort him back into their city to bring the gospel to them. 
The, the, word, the word to meet is, is to, to go, go get and escort back. And even that then makes sense of this thought that the new heavens and the new earth is here. So I put some quotes from Nathan Bierma's Bringing Heaven Down to Earth book. He says, heaven will be on earth, this earth. The ground we stand on in heaven will be the same soil we stand on now, though it's doubtful we'll recognize it when God has finished refining and purifying it. To deprive God of this earth for all eternity, which is what we do with our notions of heaven in the clouds, is to deprive the painter of his canvas. It makes sense that heaven would end up on this earth. It fits, it gives history a sense of completion. So Peter's being told, Jesus says, yes, Peter. It's going to be beyond what you can fathom what you get back. God will outgive you now and forever. And if we let that sink in, we say, well, that's kind of reversal. Kind of upside down from the world we know. Now we're at verse 30, which I think is the key of the whole text. Jesus is describing a world where the first shall be last and the last first. Everything is backwards and upside down. This is the way of the kingdom because this was the way of the king. He who was the firstborn of the father, he didn't come to consume all that was rightfully his. What happened when Jesus came? He came to be consumed. Because with God, all things are possible and the impossible way of rescue is going to be God in the flesh coming to earth to be consumed for the sin of those who needed a savior to pay for them. In Luke's account of this story, you have the rich young man in his conversation with Jesus, you have the scene with the disciples with Jesus, and then the very next scene in Luke 18, starting around verse 30, is Jesus gives another prediction of his suffering and his cross and resurrection. It's one of the most graphic of all of his predictions of his coming death. And at the end of that scene, we're told in Luke 18, 34, that the disciples understood none of these things. Why is that? I pose to you, it's because they probably were thinking like consumers. It was unfathomable to them. When they're thinking, what do we get because of what we have done, it's unfathomable to them that what they're actually going to get in the kingdom of heaven is going to come when their own king is consumed. And he doesn't seem to get anything he deserves. He'll get all the wrath of the father for the sin of his own children. That's unfathomable to them. And yet after Jesus died, suffered, died, and rose from the dead, how much did everything turn right side up in their worldview? Doesn't Paul tell us to follow Jesus means I'm crucified with Christ? I don't live anymore. It's not about me consuming anything. It's about my life being consumed, just like his life was consumed. So I'm going to close with three questions and one appeal. You see that in your outline there. Very briefly, as we just think on this, three questions and one appeal if you're a disciple on mission in the kingdom of Jesus. So here's the first question. Do you treat the kingdom of God as something else in your life that is just meant to be consumed by you? Right? It's just something in one of the pockets in your backpack. It is just one of the additional things you consume. It's on your list every week. It's just part of your life. As a consumer. Second question. What would it look like if the kingdom of God consumed you? Instead of you trying to consume it. What would it look like in how you steward your time? 
or your resources or your relationships. Okay, third question. What would be the most visible, sudden evidence that you've now been consumed by the kingdom of Jesus? Like, pick one thing. Some of you, it might just be thankfulness. You're always complaining about something. I won't, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Just an illustration. For some of you, consumed by what Jesus has done for you, how much gratitude is still yet to overflow from your heart? And that's the one thing that evidences it's consuming you and not just an additional thing you consume. Or it might be the white knuckles with which with you hold something and, and you let it go. It might be something that's actually a material thing, but it might be something you refuse to believe. You hold on to your shame. You hold on to your guilt. You won't let it go because it's yours and there's nothing that anybody can do to, to free you of it. Maybe you just need to say, what would it look like? Pick one thing. Those are the three questions. And here's my final appeal. To disciples on mission, one thing, two words, be last. That's it. This week, ask for God's grace and strength to put yourself in the last place in every room you're in. We all stink at it. What would it look like if every one of us sees ourselves as the least significant person in the room? How would that change your life at home? How would it change every conversation? How would it change your experience at work? I bet you will consume things less. I bet you'll be less transactional. I bet you'll experience things in this age that you never thought you could experience as you see the world differently. And if that's hard for you, commit that you'll do whatever it takes to be last. Go out before we take these tables down and sign up for a mission trip this summer. And promise today to me that you would never post any social media pictures about what you experienced so others will see it. Because it doesn't matter if anybody else sees it because you need to be last. You go serve someone without anybody else giving you credit. And I would just pose to you that the fruit in this age and in the age to come, hundredfold is not a big enough image. Let's pray. Father, would you hear us as we groan? And we ask that you'd work now as we receive the Lord's Supper. Thank you for Jesus who was consumed for us, who came in last. That you present us to you, righteous and pure. Give us faith in Jesus' name. Amen.